Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. Okay, my fact this week is that there is a special language in Papua New Guinea that is only used when gathering nuts. It's <laughs> <laughs> very weird. Yeah. So can you only use it when when gathering you're literally nuts. picking the nut or when you're on your way to pick the nut? Or in, the, in the general nut picking area. Okay. <laughs> um, so you can, if you try and use it outside the area where the trees are, yeah. then there's a worry that mountain spirits might come down and investigate and then cause problems with the nuts. Okay. And basically this is a taboo language. This is uh, relatively common around the world. Uh, and you change your language whenever you're doing anything as a superstition and eventually it becomes an actual language or an actual vocabulary of more than a thousand words in this case. And what's the idea that the spirits will steal the nuts from you? What's the fear here? Um, so some some normal words that you might use, like say, I don't know, I'm making these up, but like wither or dry or dead or whatever, mm-hmm. they might be bad for the plants. They might be unhealthy for the plants. Mm-hmm. And so you have to use alternative words that wouldn't, um, be generally unhealthy to the plants. And is this, if you were um, going to be part of the nut gathering unit, would you have to study this language or does everyone know this language? That's a really good point. I don't know, but I imagine they teach it to you. It's probably not the first thing you learn. It's probably more like a second language, <laughs> yeah. I would think. So it's really weird. There seem to be two different kinds of belief. One is that there's there's a spirit called Kita Meda who can rip people apart, mm. but that's only one group of people that's only one social group because there are loads of different groups all over new guinea and lots of them gather the nuts and they travel in from the coast to the mountains to get to the the nut area and the other is that as as you say that if you talk about wet things then all the nuts you find will be really wet and if you if you use words like empty or bitter same deal but it's two completely separate beliefs about why you have to use this language it's weird so then you have a euphemism for empty or bitter or wet but Mm. then that starts to mean that so then surely that becomes bad luck right and then you've got to make a new one right Um, so this is a thing called perjuration, and it happens in English as well. So, for example, the word for uh, the toilet in the 15th century it was privy, and then that was replaced by a euphemism. But then that, which was, it was replaced by bog house, which I didn't know. <laughs> that was the the polite way you'd say it instead of privy, because privy was good. rude. And then toilet, but then toilet becomes rude. So then lavatory, and now in America it's restroom. But as soon as people really associate restroom, as soon as that becomes the rude word, they'll have to think of another even more remote word. So what is it in Britain then? I think bathroom. People say bathroom to be polite, don't they? Yeah. But it will move on. Should we make a new one quickly now? Can we not go back to bog house? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The privy. Oh, sorry. The bog house. (laughs) (laughs) Only when you're around the queen. (laughs) Uh, in a similar vein, our word for bear in the Middle Ages uh, was taboo because so it probably came from Ursus. So, you know, mm. obviously you have um, Ursa Major and stuff and that's the Latin for bear. But because bears were big, scary things, it was thought to bring bear rage upon you if you said their name. So people would refer to them as the brown one or the shaggy one. And so the word for bear comes from the word for brown. It's like bruh. Wow. And in China, um, you can't say the word tiger in some places. Um, so if you're speaking about a man-eating tiger, you'll use a different word, uh, often referred to as big insect. 
Uh, there's a massive insect down the road. <laughs> Do not go. I think you'd be more terrified if someone said there's a large insect behind you and you turned around and it was a tiger. Yes. I would say just give them the warning straight out. So it's to prevent it from coming into the village. So you don't, if there's a tiger behind you, you probably say tiger. <laughs> but it's, if you say big insect, then it won't hear its name and it won't come down. Oh, Do you know so, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it won't know it's been summoned. Or... So you'll get summoned instead loads of big insects. Yes. At least there's no insects yeah um in papua new guinea so um this language even though this is language purely for picking up nuts the diversity of language in papua new guinea is extraordinary i think it's the highest diversity in the world so they have over 800 languages 850 languages and um they have so much this is what's crazy population versus the amount of languages that they have there's this thing called the greenberg greenberg's diversity index which charts how much diversity language is in per country it says papua new guinea holds the top spot it is so diverse there that the probability of two random people selected in the country any two random people if they were brought to each other to talk to each other there's a 98.8 percent chance that they won't speak the same language <laughs> wow isn't that crazy that's a bad speed dating day. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so how do you have courts and things like yeah. that? How do you have they schools? They must have and... a national language of, let's say, English or something. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They've, got, they've actually got four official languages in Papua New Guinea. Um, the fourth being sign language uh, as the official language. But that's exactly what it is. Everyone speaks a main language. And then these are all other languages that are slowly going extinct with one or two speakers left. Yeah, because they've got English that's very widely spoken there. And then they've got Toko Pisin, haven't they? Which yeah. is pigeon talk um mm. so just pigeon english which is great and i i just love all kinds of pigeon english or kind of creole when you read them because it's such a funny warping of what we say so the word for broken in toko pasin is bagarapim which is bugger up from bugger up <laughs> that's what you now now say broken um MT tin is a person who talks nonsense, you know, like an, em- an empty person. Like an empty vessel. An empty vessel, exactly. Susok man is a sophisticated uh, uh, person. Susok man. Why? James might know this. Oh, why James, you always wear silk socks. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> it? You always say there's a phrase that you used to say when you were growing up to say that someone's a bit well to do. Oh, look at you with your matching shoes. Exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Sue Sock Man means person with shoes and socks. Oh, look at you. Look at you with your matching shoes. There you go. You'd fit right in. I didn't know that Papua New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. I didn't know that either. It's massive. Wow. It depends what you count as an island, of course. Very true, yeah. If you count... Eurasia as an island cut <laughs> down to three immediately but so as in, it doesn't include Australia it doesn't include Australia after I think it's after Greenland, Greenland yeah. yeah it's um, the country is called Papua New Guinea the whole island is called New Guinea but the western half of it which is part of Indonesia is Papua and West Papua wow. yeah. and yeah. then you also have Guinea and Guinea-Bissau right and Guiana yeah mm-hmm. no, it's an absolute nightmare Germany I often get that mixed up <laughs> Um, I looked up a couple more taboos. Oh, yeah. So this is an interesting one. There's an Ethiopian language called Kambata, and it's got marital linguistic Mm, taboos. That's quite common, isn't it? Yeah, so a woman can't use... um, Some married women follow the system, which is called Balisha, and it means that they are not allowed to use words that begin with the same syllable as your father-in-law's name or your mother-in-law's name. So So my mother-in-law is called Natalia. So you wouldn't be able to talk say... about Natajak toads. 
you wouldn't be able to talk about Natasha Tones at all. Oh, you'd have yeah. nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, and you, you'd have to coin a completely different word for them. I'd just call them toads. Toads. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not <laughs> such a problem for James, which is great. <laughs> what what um what syllable would you not be allowed to use? Um, Leal. Leal. So you won't be able to talk about the northern French city, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where well, is this Le- Eurostar going to? <laughs> oh, uh, you'll see when we get there. <laughs> Shouldn't have become a train announcer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Well, there's another um, kind of gender-based specific language I was looking at in Nigeria, actually. So I guess the thing you're talking about is a, a language specific to one thing. Yeah. And this is a language in the Uban community in Nigeria. And they have different languages for men and women. Ooh. And they say they think they're the only tribe in the world who has this. That would be even worse for speed dating, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it works. And it's also bizarre because when people are born, then you get raised by your mother and your sisters and generally women. So everyone speaks the women's language. But then apparently there was an interview with one of the tribal leaders who said that as boys start reaching adolescence, they just start speaking the male language. Wow. And it is completely different. I mean, the words are utterly different. And he's like, if boys don't start speaking the male language, then we consider them a bit abnormal. So it was a kid. What a rough adolescence is that? You're like, shit, I've got to sort of memorize secretly this language I'm supposed to miraculously start speaking. We talk about toxic masculinity in this country, don't we? But that is pretty bad. You know sometimes when you're at a restaurant and you see a couple who just don't speak to each other the whole meal? Yeah. I presume every restaurant is like that. (laughs) (laughs) Relationships are constantly awkward. That's so weird. So the the meals can still speak the... Yeah, they can understand each other. They're just not allowed to speak each other's language anymore. Weird. No. I was reading about a secret language that was used in wartime in Canada and uh, it was very cleverly done because it was it's a secret language in that not many people spoke it so they were in the Canadian army they enlisted these native North Americans um, and they were they spoke Cree and Cree mm. was a language that barely anyone speaks it's only these these people and so what they used to do is in between battalions they would have Cree speakers and any messages that they needed to send across it was those people who took it so if they were caught there was no way of getting the information out of them because the language barrier was so great so it's clever yeah but mm. the problem was is that Cree didn't have words for the things that they needed to get across <laughs> so <laughs> things like um, they had uh, you know tanks and machine guns and bombers so a machine gun they had to translate into their language which is little gun that shoots fast mm. or a fighter bomber would be um the cree word for mosquito um because that was the that was the best way of explaining it so yeah they had to invent new words and new phrases in order oh, wow. to do this that's so cool that's interesting because there were planes called mosquitoes weren't there this oh, that's is the right. second world war yeah. right yeah, my granddad yeah. flew one of those were they the ones that were slightly made of wood yes they were i'm pretty wood, sure that frame, was mosquitoes i think yes or partly wooden frame that's um. very cool. Uh, I have some stuff on gathering nuts. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so don't go gathering hazelnuts on September the 21st in Birmingham. Why? Uh, because that is Devil's Nutting Day. Um, <laughs> apparently, um, according to an old folklore, um, Satan comes out at that time and he collects his nuts on September the 21st. So you leave it for him to do. And where's this? Birmingham? Uh, It's in the West Midlands, basically. Uh, And there's an old saying of something being dirty uh, in Birmingham. You would say it's the colour of the devil's nutting bag. 
Oh. Uh. <laughs> you're ever in Birmingham? <laughs> a bit of local slang for you to yeah. use. Yeah, that's going to go down like an absolute charm. <laughs> you're the coolest kid at the party. <laughs> uh, just on nut gathering, it's quite dangerous sometimes, isn't oh, yeah. it? Is so it? if you're gathering big nuts, then they can fall on you. <laughs> And <laughs> what? No, that, you love that is a genuine danger. Like coconuts. So if you're yeah. coconuts, then they oh, always wear hard right. hats. I picture nuts on the ground as opposed to in the tree. So no, yeah. sorry, yeah, from the tree. Okay, coconuts, obviously. It's yeah. not like you're just crawling on the ground. You keep bumping into nuts, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then. Um, but I like the so gathering Brazil nuts. Then foragers wear hats and they don't collect them on windy days and stuff like that. But I didn't realize that they when they fall out of trees they fall from so high that they'll bury themselves 30 centimeters into the ground no. so when you're not gathering for brazil nuts then you're digging up the ground to no get the nuts way. out isn't that That's weird because wow. they're quite spiky are they brazil nuts uh, like in their actual they are on the outside shell. yes so do you reckon they're made like that so that they because it's quite clever if you're a nut isn't it to kind of go directly yeah. into the ground and not yeah. have to get trampled in because that's where you want to be in the end. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, yeah. If you're a worm, that must be terrifying. <laughs> if you're a worm, <laughs> going through the soil. And <laughs> yeah. Suddenly yeah. these Flung. daggers are coming <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Great Slicing worm. your friend in half yeah. and now you've got two friends. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite nice. <laughs> The only species where watching your friend be cut in half is quite nice. God, the worm French Revolution would have been really weird, wouldn't it? With double the aristocrats. Or the, the worm James Bond, where, where the laser comes down and just cuts him into two James Bonds. No Messrs. Bond. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the man who worked out how to stop soft cheese going mouldy came from a place called Mould. <laughs> <laughs> so Anna, just before this, um, we started recording, mm. we ascertained that it's pronounced Mould. Yeah, Mould. Is that what you just said? Yeah, I think I said Mould. <laughs> so it's a place called Mould. It's in Norway, and you, pro- you, you sort of say it Molder. But it's still got the word mould in it. I mean, it is still quite amazing. That was very cool. This this is a great fact written down. Yeah. It looks pretty good. Um, As long as you spell mould the American way. So if you're you're reading this podcast, then great. (laughs) In America. (laughs) So this was a Norwegian cheesemaker. He was called Olaf Kavli. And yeah, he grew up in this municipality in Norway. And it was, he was actually really old when he invented Primula, which is that... Are you laughing because I pronounced it old, not older? <laughs> <laughs> um, he ended up inventing Primula, which is, you know, that cheese that you see that comes in a squeezy tube. That's interesting. I always pronounce that Primula. Same. I think it probably is pronounced Primula. And in fact, it's named after Primroses because he thought the beautiful yellow colour was reminded him of the beautiful yellow of a yellow Primrose. Yeah. So Primula makes a lot more sense. Um, anyway, yeah, he, he discovered this and then he got really rich. And he, I quite like this because it gives us all hope for our future later years of being finally successful rather than hanging out with you dorks. Um, because he <laughs> was in his 60s when he came up with this. He just ran this delicatessen. I mean, and- it does, it's not good for your next 30 years, no matter, is it? <laughs> you got 30 years of hanging around with us dorks until you manage to invent some cheese. <laughs> You're right, I'm not going to last that long. <laughs> he actually lived to 100. 
Lived in 1958. Wow, cool. And also, a good thing to know about Primula, and I'm actually going to start buying it, is that all... Well, now that you can pronounce it, it's <laughs> <much easier. laughs> um, But all the profits go to charity, yes, go to good do. causes, oh, because wow. yeah. he was a massive philanthropist, and then his son was and didn't have any offspring, and so set up the company, which is the, I think it's called the Cavley Trust, and it's legally required to donate all its profits to scientific, humanitarian, wow, charitable wow, causes. Cool. But yeah, cheese and stopping cheese going mouldy. It's been a problem for centuries. Yeah. Um, yeah. That just on the place called Mulder, mm. or Mold, um, its name comes from um, the word mold without an E on the end. It's a plural form of that place. Ah. Uh, and the word mold in Norwegian means either fertile soil, uh, skull, or mold. Wow. So it might, it might actually it be might actually be mold. Wow. That's very so cool. cool. So that I was looking up moldy cheeses or soft cheeses. So there's a cheese called Cougar Gold, which is made in Washington State University. And oh. this is really weird. So it's canned soft cheese, but it the it's canned when it's still in the curd form. So it develops as it ages, as in it's not once oh. it's gone into the can, it doesn't stay the same. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the lactic acid bacteria inside, they don't need oxygen. So the flavor keeps developing. And f- there are fans who age their cans for years and years before oh. opening them. And it's just curds. I think it goes in as curd. No and- way. Nobody? Yeah. No, no yes. <laughs> it was too good. I just had to sit back in and, and just stare in awe. I can now, <laughs> looking back when you said... 30 more years, Anna. 30 more years. <laughs> that's it, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's, that's really cool. So there's no use-by date on it, presumably? I, I, maybe there is for safety, as in maybe after a certain number of years it does go off, but I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, so when processed cheese came about, which this is an example of, then it was very controversial because oh. it threatened the normal cheese market. And there were actually a lot of cheesemakers in America who said it should be called embalmed cheese, <laughs> wow. which it was almost that named. So good. Um, but I hadn't quite realized that it's just a blend of lots of other cheeses, which I think most people will, but like offcuts oh. of the cheese making process. So, yeah. for instance, um, I think American cheese, you know, your classic American processed cheese is is a combination of bits of cheddar, Colby, provolone, things like that. That's incredible. And then they add sodium phosphate, which kind of makes it all go goopy. Yeah. But quite easy to slice and stuff like that. And that was invented, American cheese, by a Canadian, of course, who was James Lewis Kraft of Kraft fame. Kraft cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was a Canadian, and he kind of came up with this idea of... um, kind of shredding it and then adding this stuff which makes it kind of Weird. cuttable yeah. yeah so it's kind of a franken cheese yeah it and, is. and they pasteurize it so it doesn't ripen so it's not it's really not proper cheese as we the french might know it by no. the time it's been so processed. for instance Velveeta has to be called pasteurized prepared cheese product it does did you know that's only since the early 90s which mm. is when they finally worked out a way to make the base not real cheese at Kraft. So it was a really exciting moment because instead of like using <laughs> just this mixture of cheese and then adding this sodium phosphate and stuff, they worked out a way of cracking milk. 
which I didn't know was a thing. No. But basically this is you add little bits of plastic membrane into milk and it causes all the milk particles to separate and it separates out into its milk protein lumps and it makes this kind of concentrated protein Whoa. and that can be the base for their cheese. And it was at that moment when some inspectors went around their factories and they went, guys, you're not using cheese anymore. I'm it's afraid so you crazy, have to call it, it cheese products. Well, how do they come up with this shit? Yeah. So weird. I was thinking, the, the other day I found out, this is completely off topic, but... Um, Early cars had white tires. Right. And the only reason that we have tires that are black is because you add something called, I think it's called black carbon, which is just this tiny bit of weird carbon that they managed to get from the industrial process. And they just thought, let's just try it with rubber. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to make rubber 10,000 times more solid than normal. Wow. But even on that, I was like, how do you even think of that? Yeah. Are they just trying everything or what? I can't it's believe just, early cars had white tires. Yeah, if you That's see them, so yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. But an absolute nightmare to keep clean. Exactly. <laughs> you would just naturally have a black tire after yeah. a week. Yeah. yeah. You'd be as dirty as the devil's nutsack. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I just checked. Nutting bag. Nutting bag. That's it. You don't embarrass yourself in Birmingham by getting that wrong. I'm just thinking the difference between your brain and mine, James, is that you're fascinated by the fact that all these processes go on and I'm still busy here going, wow, there was an actual guy called Kraft. That was a real person. <laughs> Can't believe that. Um, so I looked up a bit about food preservation. Mm. Have we? I don't think we've spoken before about Nicholas Appert. Or Appert. So he was the man who started preserving foods by heating it a lot and then putting it in an airtight container. So this was in the Napoleonic Wars, and there was a massive prize on offer from the French army to anyone who could work out how to safely preserve food and keep it for long periods of time, because it couldn't be done. And he invented it, and it was called appertization. He, and he put all his food in glass jars, in fact, not in tins. So he won the prize, and it was decades before microbe theory. So he had invented safe food storage, but he didn't know how it oh, worked. so good when that happens. Yeah. Wow. And then... Later on, there was a British innovator called Peter Durand, and he invented giant tins. So, you know, you have a normal tin of beans or something, it's a normal size. Mm. He was keen to scale up for the Royal Navy, and he stored up to 13 and a half kilos of meat in a single can. I'm already going to go out on a limb and say that's not an invention. <laughs> Making a what? much, much bigger version of something yeah. that's already... Th- I, I, couldn't, I couldn't invent the giant book. Yeah, I'm exactly. Not <laughs> well, not with that attitude, young lady. <laughs> yeah, no, we're talking about a Guinness World Record attempt, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Think of it, it's a giant... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quarter of a person's size. Oh, my God, and he's showing hand. us how big it is with his hands, and he's right. It is an invention. <laughs> Okay, innovator. He innovated it. He innovated. It's very impressive, though. Thank wasn't you. he the same guy who? Um, wasn't this the one where um, it was like thirty years until they invented something to a, a specific tin opener? Didn't yeah, they? Yeah. So in the Napoleonic Wars, they all used their um, what are those instruments called bayonets. Bayonets. Yeah. Did they? Another name thing I came across. I was looking up some cheese studies, and there was a cheese study in the Encyclopedia of Food Sciences and Nutrition that was published in 2003 it was called cheeses colon processed cheese and the author was called a gouda <laughs> isn't that weird wow. no yeah what an unusual surname that's amazing yeah. if you but, were surprised that there was a person called Kraft <laughs> I know <laughs> but I think you'd be biased if you were called gouda a proper cheese I'm not sure I would trust you to write a balanced article about processed cheese. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, it's like being called Baby Bell and writing about the cheddar industry. That is named after a guy called Bell, isn't it? 
Is it? So I think the Laughing Cow Company was founded by the Bell Brothers, or maybe it was a father and son, oh, and their surname really? was B-E-L. So I think Baby Bell is named after a guy as well. That's and awesome. son at one point would have been a baby. Yeah, <laughs> so was the father actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing about Laughing Cow, by the way, which I did see, is I went on the website and they have one top secret technology there that they've never given away to anyone else. Okay. Do you know mm-hmm. what that is? Um, oh, no. how to um, oh, no. so it's cut triangles. triangles. Is it folding the foil? Kind of, yeah. Is it's... it the red thing? How you get the red thing to peel off so yes, perfectly? No right. way! It's the easy open foil wrapping technology, which according to the website remains top secret to this day. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's not a technology that we're crying out for, guys. That would be so useful. That would be so useful for so many Yeah, things. imagine if you had it for your clothes. Your say, clothes. And whenever you needed to get undressed at the night, you just had to pull one red string and you yeah. stopped completely yeah. undressed. You've got that. It's a zip. Strip, strip shows would be a lot shorter, wouldn't there, if there was one Baby Bell-style peel-off thing. <laughs> I found a weird thing about cheese. Humans invented cheese before they could digest milk. Okay. What? Yeah. Okay, so so all mammals, you know, they're lactose tolerant when they're very young because they're they're drinking their mother's yep. milk. And then all mammals are lactose intolerant, um, or almost all are. And then humans uh, only got the genetic mutation to, to allow them to drink milk as adults um, a few thousand years ago. But... So we, we couldn't digest lactose, but cheese has much lower lactose than milk. Yeah. So if you make cheese, you can store all the calories of the animal's milk in cheese form. And that means you can keep the calories for longer. So you'll survive longer. So you'll be clever, better fed. So yeah. that gives you a reason to keep animals for longer rather than immediately killing them or hunting them. So that yeah. means that you domesticate sheep and cows and all of this and you make cheese but you don't drink the milk but the Mm. thing is like to make the cheese is this not right that what you do is you get the milk and then you get the stomach of a dead animal and you put the milk inside the stomach because it's got acid which you need and then you leave it for weeks and weeks and weeks and then you eat it yeah i mean anna was talking about things not being inventions (laughs) that is an invention and a half isn't it it is one of those things that required them to be incredibly bored and wouldn't be able to be invented now because we've all got better things to do than experiment (laughs) with these bizarre things and the ancient greeks used to grate goat's cheese into their beer and wine Um, one of the earliest wines actually the kind of peasant wine mentioned by homer is uh actually wine and goat cheese Nice. we could try and bring back i mean i like wine and cheese yeah wine and cheese together but not one inside the other. At a party, you know, when at a party you've got to, you've got to hold a plate and you've got to hold a glass, and it's really difficult if you ever need to use it. You gesture, you gesture, yeah. Mm. If you just put the cheese in the in wine, the wine yeah. yeah. I'm going to try that this Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these? The Greeks or the Romans? The ancient Greeks. Ancient. Oh, okay. Do you think if they came here, they would think we were really pretentious? Because you know, if you go to some really posh restaurants and they have deconstructed X Y Z, like yeah. you have a deconstructed <laughs> crumble where the crumbles on one side, and do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that, yeah, they'd come yeah. and say, you fucking deconstructed wine cheese drink. <laughs> wine on one side, your cheese on the other. Who do you think you are? Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that when Charles Darwin submitted On the Origin of Species to his publisher, the publisher suggested he should rewrite it exclusively about pigeons. So... Ouch. I know. <laughs> So there's there's this uh, article in the London Review of Books which is reviewing uh, 
a book all about the publisher John Murray and the correspondence between authors and the publishers over centuries. So mm. it's got all these famous authors like Jane Austen and Lord Byron and David Livingstone and all these people. And the firm sent On the Origin of Species out to two readers when it came in. One of them was a lawyer called George Pollock who said that it was beyond the apprehension of any living scientist. <laughs> and the other was this guy called Whitwell Elwin who was a clergyman. And he wrote back saying, look, I like Darwin, but um, it's a wild and foolish piece of imagination and that it would really be a good book if he just wrote it about pigeons. Because <laughs> That's really good. He said, everybody is interested in pigeons. <laughs> so did when Elwin then, Elwin, sorry, spoke to Murray... Right. Did Murray then go back to Darwin and say, write it about pigeons? That's what I couldn't work out. Or was it just an internal email kind Ooh, of thing? Oh, I don't know. I don't know whether it got passed on to Darwin. Yeah. But that, that wouldn't involve ripping the whole thing to pieces because there's quite a lot of pigeon in yeah, there. It's just a shorter book. Yeah. It's, very, <laughs> it's a very slight edit, I think. <laughs> he, was, he was really into pigeons, though. I hadn't quite realised how much of a pigeon fancier he was. Yeah. So he might have been flattered that his pigeon work was so inspiring. He was a member of two London pigeon clubs. Two? Um, two. Yeah. <laughs> One's not enough. That's when your wife would be a bit annoyed, wouldn't she? You're spending your time at one pigeon club yeah. and you decide to join another. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is with the pigeons like he was it was a bit like breeding dogs wasn't it like the pigeons were really weird looking like they <laughs> they bred them to look not like pigeons yeah so they didn't look like the pigeons you'd see really, on oh, really? yeah so like breeds that he worked on uh, included the pygmy powder pigeon uh, the polish helmet pigeon uh, the English long-faced muffin tumbler. <laughs> a <And> classic. <laughs> if you look at these pictures, if yeah. you Google them, they don't look like pigeons at all. There's one, the English carrier pigeon, which you don't see anymore. It looks almost identical to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Does it? <laughs> it really, really does. Like, honestly, if you Google it, it just looks like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, you should put up a picture on Twitter. I will, yeah. I will. Because they're extinct, aren't they? So maybe he's actually the one surviving member of the species. <laughs> we need to start breeding him. He's breeding lots, it's fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, the, there were these ones called pouters, which are really weird, because they bred them to grow this... It, it, they're yeah. bizarre birds, because it looks like they swallowed a bowling ball, basically. It's, oh, yeah. They've got this huge, they've got this huge lump under their under their chins, as it were, in their neck. It's really yeah. strange. Well, I find it weird that we're so used to our just very standard pigeons when there aren't. there is this huge variety. Mm. So if you go to pigeon contests and pigeon beauty pageants, which you can, they're quite a big deal in the Middle East, in fact, then they look almost nothing like pigeons. A lot of them have that kind of gross turkey-like red mm. bulbous stuff around their eyes. But yeah, it's a very popular thing. I think they've been big in the Middle East since 1150 when the first <laughs> pigeon post service was set up in Baghdad and it took messages from Baghdad to Syria. And by the 1160s, then it was, you know, it was constantly taking messages back and forth to the extent that in the Crusades, the Christians brought loads of falcons over with them to try and intercept the pigeon post in the Middle East. Oh, wow. So they That's were the brilliant. first hackers That's very who would cool. grab their messages. Uh, they also used to do a lot of... Uh, homing pigeon races which mm. still go on to this day but that's been going since the 1800s and um i was reading about one in china that happened very recently and it's a huge prize for this it's a big deal in china so 160,000 american dollars would be the prize for the winning homing pigeon so they get sent 100 miles away and they have to fly back to this spot and um the fastest speed that a homing pigeon has ever done is um it go they go about 100 miles an hour what yeah, yeah. but <laughs> no way this is the, miles an hour. This is yeah. they've clocked speeds faster than 100 miles an hour, 
Um, but the ones that won would have had to have gone 200 miles an hour the first four places, and they couldn't work out how that was possible. And it turns out what it was is the owners of the pigeons um, had them fly off but immediately come back, hopped on a bullet train, which can go 200 miles an hour, get to the other side and release them, and, and they won. But they had been caught and, and sentenced to prison. I think, that's, I think that's such a silly cheat because you will be caught because pigeons don't fly at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry, did you say they got sent to prison? Not the pigeons, the humans. <laughs> Still. Uh, well, it's a huge prize, isn't it? It's $160,000. So that's, wow. yeah. Wow. Yeah, they go for a lot. I think... Uh, Chinese guy recently bought one for half a million dollars, American dollars. Yeah. They go for a huge amount of money. I, sh- I should say um, they were sentenced to three years, but it was a suspended sentence. Oh, okay. So if another crime occurs, oh, yeah, then yeah. they go to prison. Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys heard of the Spanish uh, sport, which is called uh, it's thieving? It's a pigeon thieving competition. Nope. No. This is amazing. So it's basically pigeon love island. <laughs> you get... You're a pigeon fancier and you have a male. So half a dozen men each bring a male pigeon and they paint them in in bright colours to mark which one is theirs. Hmm. And then there's a marked female and the male pigeons all compete to seduce the female and the aim is to get them to come home with them because this is a very unusual pigeon. It's called the horseman thief pouter Hmm. and it unusually it mates by bringing its mate back to its place. Um, for sex and so how do you know that they'll all fancy her though um, I think all pigeons just all fancy all other yeah. pigeons they are actually quite randy aren't they're they not, they're, these ones are not choosy yeah and so the owner wins if um, his male is the one who wins the seduction competition really? with the female yeah that's wow. amazing and they all strut around and they you know they dance and they do little <laughs> that, was some, that was some excellent pigeon strutting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this happens in Scotland too it's called um do basically the pigeons are called do's d double o and if you if you see a pigeon flying up and you know that one of your rival do men has released their pigeon mm-hmm. you release your pigeon of the opposite sex and then there's this battle in the skies over who goes back to whose place wow. and if you and if the pigeon comes back to your place you get to keep both pigeons it must be confusing because they're completely painted, right? So that's almost the equivalent human-wise of going to a Halloween party and <laughs> yeah. fancying someone who's come as a skeleton, but, but you get on well, and then the and next then morning... You, and you're like, oh, you put on white. Pigeons were the first drones, in a way, weren't they? Or were some they? of the first drones... <laughs> In that, there was, in 1907, this guy called Dr. Julius Nurbronner, uh, which I will have pronounced incorrectly, sorry, but he was a German apothecary, and he invented the pigeon camera. And this was a very exciting invention at the time. It was thought to be quite revolutionary because a couple of cameras had been sent up on balloons and stuff, but this was really acting like a proper drone. So he'd strap it like a backpack onto the pigeon's chest, like a chest pack, and send them off to fly fly through the air. And they took amazing aerial photographs. It's so worth looking at them. They are mm. like beautiful pictures. Wow. And I hadn't really considered that for most people seeing those was bizarre because they'd yeah. never seen pictures taken from above. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's a whole school of First World War artists which... or. or post-First World War art, which is derived from aerial photography and aerial landscapes, because yeah. it just wasn't a... I guess you saw maps, but... You could see it from the top yeah. of a hill or something, but yes. apart from that, you'd never you'd never be able to see a city from above, yeah. which would yeah. be impossible. Exactly. He yeah. also actually invented a horse-drawn dove cut, you know, a home for the pigeons and doves that mm. he was strapping the cameras to. 
and dark room, which is quite cool, to go with the pigeon cameras. So that it, when you thought, oh, I suddenly want to photograph this city, you'd take your whole horse-drawn dove cut and dark oh, room inside cool. to wow. where it was, and then you could send them off. Um, just one last quick thing on Darwin. Mm-hmm. I, maybe you guys all knew this, but I didn't realise that um, in the Origin of the Species, in the sixth edition, he added a new chapter, which was responding to all the criticisms from previous editions of his book. Oh, really? cool. I think that's such a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. It? Nice. That's great. We should do that with the book of the year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you'll find the Wasps article is funny. <laughs> How many people wrote in saying not enough pigeons? Did yeah. you have <laughs> loads of responses? <laughs> I just have one last thing. It's not great, but I'll mention it anyway. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up. This is just a fact on um, publishers getting it wrong. Uh, so in, in this fact, it's it's the pigeon suggestion. Um, this has just happened in Australia. There's a businesswoman and socialite called Roxy Jasenko, and um, she's just released a book. Now, she's, a, she's very famous as a PR specialist, and um, she was on Celebrity Apprentice in Australia, so she's a, she's a big name there. And um, so the book is described as a no-bullshit guide to PR, social media, and building your brand, and it had all these glowing reviews on it being street smart and hard-headed she's a totally tenacious pr expert but they've had to pulp every single one of the copies of the book because it also included as a result of the publisher's mistake a quote that was a misquote that said on the front that the book never fails to disappoint um <laughs> so med say never fails to deliver but yeah total pr That's disaster Time for our final fact of the show, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that King Louis XIII of France had a royal anagrammist. Wow. Yeah. Oh. This was like, you know, you'd have a court jester, and then you would also have your <laughs> royal anagrammist who would just be there ready to make anagrams uh, for the amusement of the king. That, that yes. really was the role. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, did, he did a number of things with anagrams. It wasn't just amusing name uh, remixes. It was... Uh, <laughs> He used to do prophecies as well using anagrams, oh. and yeah, so it had a lot of had a lot of mystical purposes as well as. I uh, wonder if he could make an anagram of Louis the Thirteenth because there's an X and three eyes in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty tough one. If he can do that, he deserves a job. You're right. You get yeah. six. I, I've got the word six, six there from Louis, and then the X, and yeah. then I've, you've got L O U, and then you've got three eyes. You've got we oui mm. in French. Yeah, oui. six. L-I-I. L-I-I. <laughs> I always, I'm really bad at doing anagrams because I always end up with spare Illy letters. means yeah. uh, or in Russian. <laughs> the Romans supposedly, there's a, there's a thing called Ars Magna, the great art. And supposedly the Romans called anagramming Ars Magna, which is an anagram of the word anagrams. <laughs> but I don't think they used, I don't think they knew the word anagrams because they didn't have a plural form like which just adds an S to the main no. noun. Normally, there are a few weird ones where it does. But anyway, I, d- I don't think that is true. But the, it does come from the Greek, anagrammatizine, from anna, which means backwards, and grammar, <laughs> which means letter. So it's putting the letters backwards. Anna with one N, though, guys. Sure. Not the two Ns, yeah. which, is, which means excellent. <laughs> <laughs> anna meaning backwards, considering that anna is a palindrome, is quite oh, weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that is weird. Yeah. 
Oh, anyway, <laughs> so what about this guy? Who is he? What oh, was so name? yeah, so we're talking the 1600s here. This is when King Louis the Thirteenth reigned, um, and this person—I um, don't actually know if he had a number of them—but uh, the one person you can find who definitely was one of his royal anagrammers was Thomas Billon. So he lived from 1617 to 1647, and he served as the royal anagrammer twice. So there's a suggestion that there might have been another person fulfilling the role in between <laughs> actually there was a real sudoku guy in between <laughs> <laughs> so he did it from 1624 to 1631 and then from 1640 till his death i guess in 1647 yeah. maybe he was fired in 31 because he had a leftover letter or something <laughs> <laughs> but he also he predicted people's characters mm. so oh. he would rearrange the letters of your name and if it came out as being you know an evil phrase then people would think badly of you do you think as a parent if you were having a new child you would deliberately come up with a good word like an anagram of you call your child like an anagram of awesome Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. you were trying to trick it. I'm a Sowie. No, a Sowie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is something that I think we might have mentioned on QI, and one of our researchers found the other day again, but that during the whole Enlightenment, anagrams were something that fascinated people. They were thought to portend certain things, like you say, if your name could spell something bad. But also, they were used by lots of scientists as a way of concealing their discoveries, whilst also kind of stamping them as their own. So people like uh, Galileo and Robert Hooke would record their initial results as an anagram and send it off when they hadn't actually confirmed their results mm. yet because that meant once they confirmed the results they could say look I did it first look here's the anagram that yeah, proves so it good. it's you... like blockchain I imagine <laughs> even though I don't really know what blockchain is <laughs> me neither <but laughs> I imagine does. it is too but the, um, the anagrams were exceptionally poor weren't they were they? Yeah, so uh, Christian Huygens, um, he discovered the rings around Saturn mm-hmm. and he wanted an anagram. Um, so he wanted to anagram Anuto Singitor Tenui Plano Nusquam Coherente Ad Ecliptam Inclinato, which means it is surrounded by a thin flat ring, nowhere touching, inclined to the elliptic. So he wanted to make that. Okay. His anagram was A A A A A A A C C C C C D E E E E E G H. But he basically put all the letters in alphabetical yeah, order. Not even tried. <laughs> not even trying. No, it's really. <laughs> That's, but yeah, that's not an anagram, is no. it? That's like the what well, we said a few weeks ago. The crosswords answers didn't have to be actual words. Oh, yeah. The anagram yeah. has to be an actual word, Christian. God, yeah. that was an easy job then, if that's all you had to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Random things. Well, there are kind of different types of anagram. This is according to a book I was reading for about 100 years ago, I think, which was saying you get a synogram, which is kind of like that. But a synogram is an anagram where the anagram means the same sort of thing. Mm. So vile is a synogram of evil mm, um, or angered, of enraged. 11 plus 2 and 12 plus 1 is a famous that, one. That blows my mind. Yeah. So cool. yeah. Every time. It's always, yeah, um, always a winner. But imagine if you thought that there were hidden things in anagrams, you would use those as examples of like, yeah. look, look how connected the universe versus yeah. when we reshuffle this stuff. I would have bought into that immediately. There's a, there's a great there's a website called anagrammy.com which has a monthly award. So uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury is another church's type of rabbi. Mm. That's nice. Very good. Um, 
the amateur thespians is an anagram of inapt hams use theater <laughs> i really like and do they do they release a, a something they want an anagram made of or are you just submitting i think you submit your own right okay and they pick a really good one each month so yes. they're synagrams they're synagrams and then you get antigrams which are the ones that mean the opposite uh so like diplomacy is mad policy <laughs> ah. <laughs> that's good there's a guinness world record for the longest anagram that you can get in the english language cool. and um, this this is for a non-scientific English word um, because in the scientific ones they they're pretty bizarre. Um, so in a non-scientific word, I have known that in the past, but I can't remember it now. Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you the the original word and see if you can make the anagram. Mm-hmm. So conversationalists. Oh yeah. What is the anagram of conservationalist? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a cheat! Well, I think it's... you should have to rearrange at least four letters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> just making up rules on the fly. Yeah, but I'm allowed. Just, yeah, it is a bit a bit measly, isn't it? What yeah. about scone and cones? Yeah, so no. that's currently the record. No, <laughs> why is why is that not good enough? I think they should be, have to begin with a different letter. Scone and yeah. cones. Yeah, I'll, okay, I'll accept scone and cones. I but just I'm came not up with that right off the bat. Like, it, n- just a, did you? Yeah. You I didn't invented even have to it. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of Corey Calhoun? No. Nope. He's no. an anagrammer. I don't think he's a pro, but he's about <laughs> as close as the modern age gets to a pro anagrammer. So he rearranged the first line of Hamlet's soliloquy to come up with a summary of Hamlet. Mm. Oh. So, oh, cool. As in just to be or not to be? Uh, no. That is the question. Well, let's see if it passes the Anna test well. for crazy anagram so to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune okay that he rearranged to make in one of the bard's best thought of tragedies our insistent hero hamlet queries on two fronts about how life turns rotten <laughs> that's, that's good. very good <laughs> yeah. that's really nice so good there's another thing that gets done where these kind of big challenges where people try to take complete texts and create an anagram that works so that it just works as a whole separate work mm-hmm. if that oh. makes sense so the biggest one that's ever been completed is a guy called mike keith has anagrammed the complete text of moby dick so that's no. yeah nine hundred thirty-five thousand seven hundred sixty-three letters um and he used a computer to do this so that scene is uh, a cheat oh, so the computer yeah. did it yeah but there was a person who did do it all by himself which was richard brody and he made an anagram of battle of the books by jonathan swift and that's forty-two thousand letters 100 42,177 letters. But how much of a different anagram does it be? Could you have the exact same book, but it just is call me Uh (laughs) male-ish? The rest of it's exactly the same. Um, So the the ancient Greeks had, this is kind of related, so it's it's about um, palindromes, not anagrams, but Greek fountains had a big palindrome written on them which said nispon anominmata mi monan opsin, so that's exactly the same backwards as it is forwards. And it means wash the sin as well as the face. Oh, that's a good one. Isn't that cool for a fountain? Yeah, very yeah. good. I do know what the longest palindrome in the English language is. Oh, go on then. Oh. It's redivider. Oh, redivider. Nice. Very strong. Yeah. Oh, cool. Just a fact. That's a good fact. Did you guys know the Dutch national anthem is an acrostic? As in the first letter of each word spells something out. The first letter of, of each, each line, line spells something out. Oh, so cool. the first letter of sorry, the first letter of each of the fifteen verses <laughs> spells out William Van Nassau, as in William of Orange's name. Because um, wow. and it's sung from his perspective, so it's all in the first person. Bizarrely, when you're Dutch, you all <laughs> sing as if you're William of Orange when you sing the anthem. Isn't there a line where he kind of says, "And I um, give everything to the King of Spain" in that? Is there? I think there is. Oh, yeah, it's awkward. 
Oh, yeah. how weird. And they were trying to change it, I think. But now you can't really, otherwise the acrostic won't work. Doesn't work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, scuppered. There was a guy called Andre Pujon. And this was back in the day when everyone thought that um, anagrams were really important and they had some kind of spiritual thing behind them. Uh, he worked out that his name was an anagram of Pendu de Riom, mm-hmm. uh, which means hanged in Riom. And so he decided to fulfill his destiny by traveling to the town of Riom and committing criminal offense, which meant that he was hanged. Wow. Um, so he actually, you know, made sure that the omen happened. Right. That's, oh, poor guy. Oh, no, silly, silly man. Well, there, might, there, could have been, there could have been another anagram he might have found where it said, had a relaxing holiday <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah. 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 I mean, it probably is just a story, isn't it? But it is a story that exists. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the bar we've decided to set ourselves. (laughs) Um, So there's an anagram thing in our book as well. In the book of the year, there's a a thing about Banksy. Because he submitted an artwork to the Royal Academy under the name Brian S. Garkman, which is an anagram of the words Banksy anagram. Yeah, nice. And they did not spot it. They rejected it. And then they asked him, can he submit a work... They just got in touch with the Banksy and said, can you submit a work of art? And he sent them the thing that they had already rejected <laughs> and they accepted it. Mm. Would they have been expected to spot an anagram? I Do people naturally have, a... have an anagram pass over everything that's submitted? <laughs> <laughs> this is an anagram of Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, buddy. <laughs> Supposedly, if you are asked to solve anagrams against a green background and then against a red background, you'll do worse on the red background. Oh, really? This has been tried. And um, the people who were exposed to the red background anagrams did substantially worse. Is that because the text was in red on both times? (laughs) (laughs) It was black text. Um, Sorry, so is that... Sorry, I misunderstood. So it's... um, There's a piece of paper that is red. Is yes, that, right, and sorry. it's got anagra- it's got anagrams in black that need to be solved, mm. as black as the devil's nutsack. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not. It's it's the not, devil's not, nutting bag. bag. No, the language has evolved at this point. It's the nutsack. There was another uh, paper that suggests <laughs> that it's easier to solve am- anagrams while you're laying down rather than standing up. Right. No Whoa. way. Yeah. I don't, I don't that. think that's true. Is it because there's more blood flow in your head? Because um, the red-green thing is crazy It suggests that if you do worse on the red That you're sensitive to the cue of danger <laughs> You think these anagrams are dangerous, you know It must be just that you can't see black on red As well as you can see gr- no, black it's, on it's, green it's not, I tried it and actually I did better on the ones with the red background Than the green ones So I would have been an, yeah. an anomaly in You're there. so brave Does that mean <laughs> you should lead us all into war? I'm now a general in the army <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James at James Harkin, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from links to our upcoming tour, all of our previous episodes, as well as links to buying our book, Book of the Year 2018. Do please buy it. Okay, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.